This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. March for me is turning out to be the month of story. I have two talks I'm giving this month, including a talk at the Malofier Infographic Summit in Pamplona, Spain, which I've been working hard on. I've been thinking a lot about how we tell stories with data and what that word story means. There's been a lot of writing about this and thought about this. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it myself. And so on this week's episode, I'm very excited to have on the show John York, who has written the recent book, Into the Woods, A Five-Act Journey Into Story. Um, it sort of kicked off a lot of my thinking about what we really mean when we think about story. So uh, I'm excited to have uh, a different kind of guest on the show this week. We're not going to talk about code. We're not going to talk about platforms. We're going to talk about story. John, thanks for coming on the show. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we have talked already in depth several times about story, and I want to get to what we mean by story, but maybe uh, for those who aren't familiar with you or this book, um, you can just give us a little bit of your background and, and background on what it takes to, to write a book about story. Sure. I mean, background-wise, uh, I started in radio about uh, 30, 35 years ago, um, moved over to television, worked for the BBC for many years, and then went to Channel 4, which is uh, one of the bigger terrestrial commercial channels in the UK. And I was head of drama at Channel 4 for two years before I moved back to the BBC as head of um, drama production and ongoing training as well. And I did that job for about 10 years before um, swimming off on my own to form my own independent and write books like this one. So, mm -hmm. so, so I've been working in the industry solidly all my life uh, and I just felt there was a there's a lot of books about storytelling but I did feel there was a gap for one more <laughs> right so maybe you can give us a feeling for what this book is about and how it fits that hole in the literature sure. there sure um, in, you, have, you have to remember in the UK we were very very suspicious of anybody writing about the craft of storytelling far more so than I think in America one of the great uh, British writers Alan Plazer who died recently he wrote thousands of incredibly highly respected TV shows boasted that the proudest moment of his life was punching Sid Field in the face. Uh, <laughs> and that seems symptomatic of the British attitude that drama and the study of drama is, is an art. It's mm -hmm. not craft and not something you can practice. Now, that's changing slowly, but it's not quite to the extent it is in, um, in, in, in the US, I think. And I think the reason why is because... When you read screenwriting books, most screenwriting books, they tell you, and I'm obviously like paraphrasing massively, there has to be an inciting incident on page 22. Mm -hmm. uh, but what none of these books do is tell you why. Mm -hmm. And if you've come from any kind of academic background, you realize that without the why, 
everything else cannot stand. It will not be taken seriously in academic circles. So I went to the professor of English at the University of London and I said to him, what do you think of Robert McKee? And he said, who? And this is a really highly respected professor, writer, journalist. And this stuff just isn't taken seriously in academic circles Mm. because there's no rigorous academic underpinning. You know, if you have a university education, you know, you have to prove stuff. You know, you can't just say that you have to do this on this page or this happens because of this. You have to say why. And I couldn't find the why anywhere. So I thought I was lucky. I had the kind of job that allowed me to start looking for it. Yeah. Because my job was training the next generation of British television writers. Uh, And so I spent six years writing a book. We tried to explain where storytelling came from, where structure came from in particularly and why structure was the shape it was and why there appeared to be a universal pattern and where that came from and so that became my obsession which led to the led to the book right all right so let's get to it so how do you define story and is there a succinct way to define story or is it one of those things that we just kind of know but we can't really pin it down yeah well it depends who you're talking to the best way Fine. I mean, if you want to be very dry about it, it's a chain of cause and effect wrapped around a truth. Fundamentally, is a series of links. Uh, one thing leads to another because of the other that passes on a proven truth. The story proves the truth. Okay, that's a very dry um, thing. But it's tied in with the other explanation of what, what a story is. Is why we tell them. We tell stories fundamentally so we can experience what it's like to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. You have this extraordinary thing going on. Bring some science into it. Uh, of when you listen to a story and you become engaged in the story, your mirror neurons kick in, and your brainwave starts to mimic the sense of excitement that the protagonist is going through. So when the protagonist jumps, when Indy jumps, when he sees snakes uh, in the Lost Ark, you jump too. Yeah. You, you, your brainwave sync with theirs. You feel what it's like to be some somebody else. So stories really are the essential building block on which societies, communities are, are built. Yeah. And it's really about the feeling. I mean, you say here in the book – it's the enduring pattern of how someone is found by being lost. All tales then are at some level a journey into the woods. There's the tag for the <laughs> title, but all, yeah. all tales then are, are at some level a journey into the woods to find the missing part of us to retrieve it and make ourselves whole. I mean, I think, I think that's a key piece about, about stories, right? Is the emotion, the drama, that's the hook and that's why we care. Yeah, it's all about an emotional response, you know, like, you know, well, what stories understand is, is you can be as rational as anything, but that's not going to convince anyone. You only have to look at the current political scene, both uh, where you are and where I am, to see that facts are meaningless. You can't persuade people with facts. What persuades people, what conveys um, people to believe one thing or another is emotion. Right. Uh, and so it's perceived reality. And so that's what storytelling taps into is it, it, it provokes an emotional response. So I know data and data visualization isn't your area, but when I think about people who use this phrase telling stories with data, yeah. they then say, let's tell a story and we make a chart, right? We make a bar chart or a line chart or whatever. That to me doesn't have the emotion. I mean, it can have emotion if I care a lot. But it's not the same kind of emotion, I don't think. No, you're not identifying with a protagonist for a start. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
your rational brain is engaged in interpreting a series of facts rather than going on a journey that takes you into an unknown world and reveals something on the other side. Yeah. Um, but part of that is how the data is revealed. You know, you can reveal data in a, in a way that has a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you can say, um, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. 30 years ago, 2% of the population of Arkansas did this. 20 years later, 82% did it. How did they get there? But is that, but do you need for that to be revealed in a visual way? So let's just think of that line. It goes from 2% to 20%. And I show you this line chart and I can see it all at one time. And so it's not revealed to me in that time dimension of revealing, right? Like in a book, I have to turn the page to see, to get the reveal. The time uh, dimension is really important because yeah. so, you know, so much of narrative relies on suspense and the slow reveal of key information. You know, in the loosest sense of the world, you look at a graph, a graph does tell a story, but it's the loosest interpretation of what a story means. It's not one that is engaging um, and makes me go, I'm going to sell my house and leave my wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unless the story is you're sitting on a la- on earthquake, <laughs> right, right, or a box of gazillions of dollars. But yes, you know, I, I feel like when I when I talk to a lot of people about well, how are we going to tell a story with these data or with this graph? They say, well, on the first slide, I just show the axes, and then on the second slide, I show this line, and on the third li- slide, I show this line. But I think a lot of us are making graphs that are not animated. Or revealed in that way. We're showing here it is. Here's the yeah. data. Here's the thing. But A, it doesn't have that emotion and B, it doesn't have that reveal. Exactly. And so I don't think it falls into that category of story. Uh, no, I mean, if, you, if a straight ahead graph, partly, mostly because of the time dimension means yeah. it's, it's just a series of facts which the, the viewer interprets with the help from if someone is presenting it to them or, right. or not. But it, no, it's not going to have uh, the same effect at all um but if you think about it you know it's worth reverse engineering uh where stories come from the second so my argument is fundamentally that the structure is really based on the method by which humans accumulate knowledge Mm -hmm. so it's a dramatization of the knowledge accretion process if you like so storytelling three acts of storytelling uh come from i exist I observe the world, I change. That's very scientific. Mm-hmm. You know, it's rational observation of the world. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis would be the purest way of looking at that. And, of course, the dramatization and personification of that process is what gives you story structure. So that's all it is, fundamentally, is is dramatic structure is directly linked to the process by which we learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take something like Breaking Bad, for example, Walter White encounters crystal meth becomes Heisenberg mm-hmm. is a dramatization of the process in which you learn either corruption or the production of crystal meth or the world drug dealing or, or whatever. So there is a link between science and storytelling, but storytelling is peopled with great characters that incite empathy and jeopardy and anxiety and identification and just emotion, basically. Right. What I think is interesting about the Breaking Bad example, to, to take one example, is that the viewer's relationship with Walter White changes 
over the course of the whole program, right? You, you, you empathize with him, I think, towards the beginning. And then I think your, your, your perspective or your feeling towards him changes maybe halfway through the show, the season. Uh, yeah, he takes you into a very interesting place. I mean, I think for it to work properly, you have to love him throughout, even when he's doing things you don't approve of. But, yeah. you know, it's the same with um, uh, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. Right. Uh, you know, em- the empathy is so powerful, it can take you into a really dark place. Mm-hmm. Are there other aspects of story that you think good writers or good creators use that really grab people's emotion, that really hook them in? I don't want to say it's a formula, but are there certain aspects that you find are those driving pieces? I think the driving pieces of all narrative are is a combination of empathy, certainly. So you've got to identify – you can't identify with a graph, but you can identify with the person presenting the graph mm-hmm. or the writer – writing it so you you know you warm towards a voice you trust that feels reliable that you want to identify with uh and then it's really about how and when you choose to reveal information so if you say i've got this you will never believe what happened in arkansas in 1978 that's a narrative technique because you're creating intrigue and i'm going to tell you once upon a time blah so you continue, you're, you're, you're deferring gratification. Yep. So all narrative really is, 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 is asking a series of questions to which you don't give the answer straight away. So if you're telling a story of, of data, then if you're presenting that in a way you want to be attractive, you don't reveal the conclusion till mm-hmm. slide. You know, everything leading up to it is a tease, is a provocation, is a deferral of gratification uh, or a point that makes you gasp and reconsider everything you've done. Yeah, I think there's two important things that I want to touch on. So I think the first thing is about the protagonist. So how is the creator of the visualization of the graph? How can that person be identified as the protagonist? I can see if I'm standing in front of a room talking Mm -hmm. to people and making an argument, showing visuals and, and what have you, how people can identify as me as the protagonist because we're there together, yeah. I guess. But if I, yeah. if I hand you my report, how can we as creators of visualizations come through as a protagonist? Well, if it's written, then it depends on the form it's written. If you're mm-hmm. just presenting a graph in which the, there is no passing of time to consume it, so you're just looking at it, then you can't. Yeah. You know, but if you're you're following page one, page two, page three, and each page wants you to make the next page, then you're becoming yourself the active protagonist in the discovery. Yeah. You're becoming the detective. But the standard way is, I mean, it th- if you think of it in terms of rhetoric, if you think of politicians, they're, they're basically standing up and giving you an argument. One of the key ingredients of rhetoric is, I think, is ethos, which is your ability to identify with the speaker. And if you get your ethos right, you can convince people of anything. And I think, again, in in your last election, you could see this very clearly. Mm -hmm. All his inability to speak the language of the Greek gods, Donald Trump connected with a huge swathe of people who didn't want to be talked to like that, but wanted somebody who told it like it was. And that's a very powerful rhetorical device in itself. So if you're standing up making a presentation of data then it's how you present that in a way that people go i like this guy right. you know i'm going on a journey with him yeah. and wow he's led me you know if you think of the great public scientists like goes carl sagan isn't it um people like that you're in safe hands 
Right. So you're creating an emotional relationship with the theory through yeah. the person presented it. Yeah, that's interesting. I can see how it's easier for me, at least, to do that when I'm standing in front of people. Yeah. And But doing it through the writing where it may be a dry topic. Oh, you know, I'm looking at this thing. It was 2% in this year. You know, turn the page, figure two. Oh, look, now it's 19%. But how do I write that in such a way that it, it is a narrative, it is a story where the reader wants to follow along? I think part of it is research, data analysis can be very dry. I mean, it's a question for you, really. Does it have to be dry? No, and I think that's the big question. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is how researchers or analysts, we tend to work with a lot of data, but we don't end up ever really talking to people or talking, <laughs> you know, right? Like we never, you know, oh, I have this big data set. I have, I have uh, a lot of information. I know other people gave this information, but I'm never going to go talk to them. And I don't mean to say that we need to be journalists per se, mm. but having a conversation with someone to understand their experience, I think helps draw out that emotion, right? And helps make it relevant and personal for the reader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I mean the way to look at it, it seems to me, is, is you're using data to present an argument. Right. Aren't you? I mean... This may not be an example that works for everyone, but the one that comes immediately to mind is Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. whereas effectively he's presenting a lot of data right. to you for an hour and a half. And it's, how, you know, it's, and it's for the viewer to judge how successful is he in doing that? Is he reaching a, his desired audience or is he reaching an audience beyond the liberal bubble within which he works? You know, there's all those kind of questions, but fundamentally that's an entertaining way of presenting an argument based on science yeah um, and you know again it doesn't work for everyone i mean you you had this problem in in, in certainly in, i can't talk about american television because I'm not an expert on it, but political television particularly in the uk changed massively in the late 1960s early 70s when journalists realized that dry factual analysis didn't work people couldn't absorb it. They couldn't understand data. They couldn't picture numbers. It just all became meaningless. So they would, I think they were trying to, there's a program called World in Action. They were trying to convey the amount of deaths that occurred through lack of sanitation or whatever. And they filmed a community in the north of England. I, I think, I'm, this is from memory, um, marching coffins down the street. Mm. And immediately what was an abstract became oh, my God, this is a really serious problem. Right. They told the story and they made an emotional story out of it. And so, you know, it's very tabloid, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if you want to communicate important ideas to people that they otherwise wouldn't listen to. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Making it relevant for people, trying to get people to, to connect with it, I think is one of the big challenges of communicating data in general. I think it's one of the things that we see where some of the more popular visualizations are very good at making those connections with people, even if they're not necessarily telling a story the way we've been talking about it in some way, right? They're sort of visceral. They make you think, I don't know, I'm, I'm still sort of trying to struggle with this a little bit, but I think, um, you know, the aspect of storytelling may not necessarily need, I'm trying to figure out a way where storytelling, you don't necessarily need a person or uh -huh. a unit, right? And it's the visual itself, it's the graph itself that makes you 
feel. It makes you, you know, it, it, it really hooks into you, but doesn't necessarily focus on an individual's experience. And I think that's been done in, in, in places, but it's not done enough. And I think we are, we being people who work with data in, in the field, are a bit flippant with the term story. Right. Right. So and, let, well, let, let me ask you, and when was the last time you had an emotional response to a graph? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question, but I, I can think of examples. So I think the example everyone would sort of probably agree on is, uh, Periscopic here had a, had a visualization on gun deaths, um, right. that I think everybody can connect with. Uh, Neil Halloran has some, I guess they're more documentary videos that take some of the things that you sort of mentioned about, you know, the coffins, but he does sort of some more scrolling visualizations that, that have aspects of that. But both of those, I'll note, both of those have an animation to yeah. them, right? They, they, they're a video or there's an animation on top before you go into the visualization. I can't think of many off the top of my head where it's a static graph that makes me feel. And maybe the only exception to that is this visualization on deaths in Iraq that came out of, I believe, Reuters or Hong Kong that I'll link to on the show notes. But it has some of those aspects. But it's So that's one of the few examples, I think, of static visualizations that have that emotional hook, whereas many that I that I'm thinking of just top of my head are they have this animation, they have this time sequence, yeah. where as you said, they're building towards something. It's the slow reveal of information, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, that's a story because you, there's a causal argument. Yep. You know, uh, and when it, when it is just static, I mean, in terms of the gun death thing, is a good example. Is your reaction is you know you're the protagonist because you you've worked it out yourself so effectively if you'll pardon the analogy you're the detective in the drama mm-hmm. you cut out the middleman it's, it's so clear and so shocking so immediately that you have an immediate visceral emotional response and you go this graph tells me a story and the other counterpart to that is and I must do something about it yeah you know that's yeah. when you've got an emotional response right and right. it spurs you to action. Yeah, it's a spurring to action that we want people to do, and that's yeah. that's probably maybe another another level time for another discussion. Um, <laughs> the other piece that you mentioned is <laughs> this sort of reveal in the in the case of giving a presentation where yeah. you want to hold off on the conclusion of the yeah. graph, and I'd say there's a bit of a mix there because what I like to do when I talk, if it's you know sort of a research or an academic talk, is give my conclusion up front. You know, I'm going to show you that this, you know, 2% increase in this thing is going to lead to a 5% increase in this other thing. But I think then throughout the remaining part of that, of that presentation within there, I'm trying to build the drama or build the emotion or build that sort of uncertainty. But overall, my audience knows where I'm going. Yeah. So... How does that work in sort of the traditional storytelling? Do you want to give people a sense of where you're going? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's really bad storytelling. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is if you don't subvert it. Um, good storytelling is where you show them an ending four weeks earlier, and then you build, and then you reconceive right. the first slide. So it means something different to what you thought. Right. So, so that, that would Yeah. So like American Beauty... Uh, yeah. you know he's going to die, right? He tells you right at the front. Inception. Uh, yeah. You know, you see the the ending scene right at the beginning, so you know how it ends, but you're not, you don't know how you get there. Exactly. Right. So the more common technique is, is films begin with a crisis 
you know, there's someone in peak jeopardy and then you do the four weeks earlier and then you work all the way back to that crisis and then through it to a resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but normally in drama, in all storytelling, really, it, it's very unusual to start with the conclusion because then why, why would people stay? Right. Because dramatic narrative is all about the deferral of gratification. And if you're gratified at the top, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting if you're fascinated by the, you know, the workings out and how you get there. But it's never as, you know, it's much more powerful narratively to say, you know, we were exploring, you know, or we did a lot of work in this and you won't believe what we found. Right. Or we thought we were going to get this or, you know, anything that makes you go, what? Tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't tell them. Right. And you build, build up to it. So that's the classic narrative technique. Yeah, so so in those examples where you give people the ending first, what is that attribute or the characteristic of that that you need to do? You need to say, I'm going to give you the ending, but I've I've got to give you something that makes you say, well, how did you get there? Yeah, right, exactly. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's exactly here. You know, like, yeah, this is the ending. You won't believe how we got yeah. there. This is a very crass way of a non-scientific way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But- all it takes in something like that is, but while we were working this out, we discovered something even more extraordinary. Yeah. Dramatic pause. Immediately, yeah. everyone goes, what? <laughs> but, but first, let me take you back to Tuesday, right. 31st of March, 2012. Yeah. And you're in. And you're in. Yeah. And you're hooked. And it's all about, yeah. that. It's all about that hook. Yep. I mean, I I watch a lot of people give PowerPoint presentations in my life because I go I do a lot of big talks of businesses and things like that, and you can see the difference very very clearly when people know how to structure a talk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, the ones that work are the ones structured like a narrative, and yeah. the ones that don't work are just a series of facts delivered in a monotone. Yeah, you know, where they're relying on the presentation to do the work for them. Right. Wow, this is really interesting. Um, <laughs> I think uh, why don't we stop for now and we'll pick it up again because uh, I think people are, uh, you know, they're probably on their way to work and, you know, have to, you know, turn off their headphones. and, and <laughs> So, um, John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, John's book is Into the Woods, A Five-Act Journey into Story. Really enjoyed it. Read the whole thing almost through twice. So, um, uh, John, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about uh, maybe an aspect of storytelling that you may not have thought too much about so i appreciate you uh, coming on the show uh, it's been a pleasure thank you very much and thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode uh i know a little bit of a, a change of pace i hope refreshing change of pace uh so thanks for tuning in so until next time this has been the policy of this podcast This episode of the PolicyViz podcast is brought to you by Jump statistical discovery software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with data viz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.